welcome to True Crime Thursdays, a special monthly installment to our regular podcast worth reading Wednesdays here at the Columbus Lounge Public Library System. True Crime Thursdays is a segment hosted by CLPLS librarians that highlights available true crime reads through the library's print and digital offerings. True Crime Thursdays discusses situations and cases with content that may not be suitable for young listeners. Welcome back. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a while, <laughs> and it's been a struggle to get here, and we're still struggling now that we're here. <laughs> um, because on this very first True Crime Thursdays of the new, whatever we're calling this, the new... Season. Season, yeah. yes. Um, we're on season two, episode one. We're on season three. Season three? Yeah. No. Well, of True season, Crime Thursdays yeah, is season, season two. two. Okay. Yeah. You're right. You're right. All right. But season two, what was I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> One, I had like a sinus infection and now my ears are all wonky. So I can't really, like I can hear, but it sounds weird. It's like you're in a cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my book got checked out that I was going to talk about. And somebody decided that they love my book so much that they kept it at home. Uh, so, <laughs> so we're struggling, and I hope y'all will forgive us. But just bear with us. If you hear a couple pages rattling, just know we're trying to find what we're trying to talk about. That's right. All. And I mean, I feel like if anything, it should be a comfort to the listeners. We struggle too, you know. Thanks. And when you're on the struggle <laughs> bus, you can just come back to this episode <laughs> and laugh at us. Because we're going to be laughing at ourselves throughout this, I promise you. Mm-hmm. I've got screenshots of my pages over here, but none of them are in order. <laughs> and I don't remember what I was trying to say with them. So, yeah, it's going to be a whole adventure here. Oh, yeah, because I got, like, Wikipedia pages and summaries because I read this book so long ago. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to talk about it for the last two, maybe three months. Yeah. <laughs> so... Well, it should be interesting. Yeah. In that vein, do we want to recap where we've been, what we've been doing? Sure. What have you been doing? Living. Living. <laughs> um, well, it's been summer for us here. Well, sure, it's been summer for everybody everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the other hemisphere. Okay. Because, like, in Australia, it's like it's, Christmas. Oh, okay. So, okay, good. So I don't feel so bad saying it. Yeah. We've been actually processing a lot of books and getting things out on the shelves for you all to read. So I spent most of the summer cataloging more children's books. That's on me. Yeah. She did that, but <laughs> we um appreciated it. And then also during this time frame, we've added more DVDs to the collection and created more binge boxes. So we've actually been, like, getting more stuff out for... um check out and usability yes so we've been working pretty hard well i have and toy has too but on a different area oh lord <laughs> yeah we did over 30 programs a month for june and july oh jesus um so our summer library program was themed with oceans of possibilities and we did um you know, our regularly hosted programs that we do. We did programs in Artesia, Crawford, and Caledonia. Had big turnouts at everything. And um, I think people are feeling a little bit more comfortable being around crowds now. So it's not quite where it was pre-pandemic, but we're rebuilding those relationships, making sure that people know that we're here for the summer as a safe space they can come. And they were just glad to get out of the house. Like, I'm glad to be around other people right kind of the same faces and we opened our tinker space yeah so excited about that love the name yeah so it's kind of like a maker space melded with our teen space anybody can use it but um the focus is just like a play on the words of teen and tinker so it includes a 3D printer that is still giving me issues. <laughs> so, again, all aboard the struggle bus there. We have VR headset, Oculus 4 or something. 
Um, we have a Nintendo Switch, Xbox, and we have a Cricut machine. We have a green screen, a whiteboard, all kinds of the collaboration tools. So, yeah, we have some new furniture in there. And we're trying to make it a more welcoming space and for yes. people to come and use our equipment. Um, to use anything in the Tinker Space, you do need a library card. And you would have to fill out the Tinker Space contract, accepting all responsibility for any damages that occur during your use. But, yeah, you can just make an appointment by calling us or... Um, there is a like a fast pass program for the teens so right now it's not really active because it's school time and nobody's like chomping at the bit to play on the gaming equipment but say for example there's a line and there's a long wait on like the xbox or something the teens can do the fast pass program schedule a writing consultation with me and they get bumped to the top of the list Sounds like a plan. So, I seek flags <laughs> for Disney World. Yeah, so that's kind of where we've been, what we've been doing. Sweating a lot on my end. I don't know about you, but it's been a Oh, yeah, really you've been outside then, or just dealing with a lot of people and children. It's good soup. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely haven't been sweating, mm -hmm. but these new frames, they have the blue light in them, the mm -hmm. key, blue blockers, yeah. Definitely haven't been putting those to use because I've been in front of the computer screen quite a bit cataloging. So, yeah, I read this quote or like a maybe it was a TikTok, I don't know, you know, it was on the interwebs and it was like the library requires like the library depends on a certain number of books not being in the building at any one time. So Libraries never actually have space for everything in their collection because we depend on people to check them out. Oh, man, that is so factual. So factual. Because every time, I'm always shifting because it's like... Yeah. Yeah. And they said that, like, <laughs> the library is technically everywhere because everybody has a piece of it. And we have to keep that going in order to keep our place going. Yeah. That I is, just thought that was cool. That is the most <laughs> true post Cause, you know, sometimes some of this stuff on Facebook and Instagram and all these places be fabricated. But that one, thanks. All right, so we're gonna dive in. Do you want to go first, or do you want me to? Uh, it doesn't matter. We should have flipped a coin. Rock paper scissors. Yes. Okay. Rock. Why do I do? <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could see my. Hand. She put two fists up like she was about to fight me. <laughs> okay. Rock paper scissors shoot. No. no. <laughs> You did both have paper. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Okay. I got rocks, she got scissors. I'll go first. Woo, okay. No pressure. So I read Mississippi Mud. Mm, and that is a book in our nonfiction true crime section. The call number for true crime is three six four, I believe, right? Yes. Um and Mississippi Mud has been reprinted several times because of its popularity. I am trying to pull it up right now <laughs> because I want to get the full title for you guys. Um, it's currently checked out, so it's still going strong, even though it was published years ago about a crime that happened in the 80s, I believe. Look at me out here not spelling Mississippi correct. You know what? We'll give you a pass because you're not from here. But, I, ain't, I ain't from around here. And I'm not from here. I'm from Louisiana. But, you know, I still I have to say it out loud to make sure I don't miss an I or an S. Yeah. <laughs> so, we have the newer updated version of um, Mississippi Mud. And it... Okay, Goodreads. Thank you. Um, it's The subtitle is called Southern Justice and the Dixie Mafia. And so, basically, it follows the murder of Vincent and Margaret Sherry in Biloxi, Mississippi. And if you've lived in Mississippi, grown up in Mississippi, you've probably heard of this case. And I have not. Um, I have lived in it. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> but I have not grown up in Mississippi. So, I was not... Like, I, I only heard about this a couple years ago through um, Southern Fried True Crime, actually. Uh -huh. um, essentially... 
Edward Humes is the writer, and he's won some Pulitzer. He's won a Pulitzer Prize for journalism, and the breakdown of the story is um, one morning. Vincent and Margaret couldn't be contacted. Like, they weren't answering their phones. They Vincent didn't show up to work. Very out of character. Because Vincent grew up in Kentucky. And he was very, like, he knew a lot of um, world knowledge. Like, he spent time in Vietnam and wrote his doctoral thesis on, like, something to do with Vietnamese law or something. I'm not quite sure. Um, and then he he's just so smart like everything everybody has to say about him is he was very sharp with it he was very particular but he was like a genius pretty much and um he was he was working as a judge at this point I believe Y'all, it's been a minute, so forgive me if I get some of these wrongs. And I'll add some stuff in the show notes about the case. So, because, I mean, it's so widely covered that there are tons of resources on this. So, don't take anything that I say. Uh, <laughs> don't take it. Just take it at face value. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Margaret was actually running for mayor of Biloxi at the time. Like, she was planning on running for mayor. I don't think she had fully announced her candidacy yet, but... She was working up to it because Margaret had a big feud with the current city mayor. She was like, he's the reason why, you know, the illegal game, because Biloxi was having a huge issue with the illegal gambling and illegal prostitution on the strip is what it's called Uh, at the time. It was basically like, right. (laughs) And like, none of that was legal and it was just out there. They was out there just wilding, wilding. And they didn't care because it was like the law enforcement officers were getting either paid or benefiting from yeah. it. So it's like we're not – it was like so out there that it was like you had to ask yourself, was it illegal? Because, I mean, <laughs> what? Everybody's doing it. And it's like I don't, I don't know. But Lynn um, it was one of their daughters. So Vincent and Margaret had four kids, two boys and two girls – and when they passed away, their youngest daughter was still in college. And Lynn is their oldest daughter. And she's the one who took up the kind of the case and took up the duty of trying to get justice for her parents. And it took her almost like 20 years to do so. And her family struggled because of it. Because, you know, she's living her life in two places, essentially. She was in North Carolina when this happened. And she still lived in North Carolina throughout all of this. But her parents are in Biloxi. And she's, like, visiting Biloxi. And it definitely wouldn't stay for her to live in Biloxi for sure. <laughs> so what happened is um, Vincent's business partner, Pete Hallett, goes to check on Vincent and Margaret and finds them in there. Like, Margaret's coming out of the bedroom. And she was shot and then Pete finds Vincent at the like in the living room and the way he says it is like it was some sketchy stuff because he's the one who found them and then he called the cops but it was like later on you find out that he found them and then like didn't say anything at first and then came back and called the cops and, like, where he said he found them, he was like, I didn't see them at first. But if he didn't, they weren't where he said, like, where they were based on, like, what happened when the cops got there. He didn't match seen, up um, with, yeah. He should have seen them immediately. Yeah, um, and he didn't. He, he said it, he did. Yeah. yeah. And the thing was, I'm just going to hurt you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> but... Vince and Margaret had two dachshund puppies, and they called them the boys. Because another thing that tipped off that there was something weird going on is that the boys didn't make any noise. Uncle Baby Lenny would let you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that was. They did not kill the babies, too, the boys, no. too. Okay. Um, that I was. I was like, wait a minute. But that was Lynn's tip off that. 
this was somebody who knew, knew them that them. killed them because yeah. she was like the boys were guarding their bodies when the police came in and they were sitting there like not letting anybody approach like that's how guarded those dogs were about their owners but Lynn was like so why didn't they say anything? Yeah, yeah like somebody should have gotten away with like a dog bite at least yeah. like can we check the guys the boys teeth or something like but the fact yeah. that they were there was no sign of anything happening like she was like somebody yeah it was somebody they knew as lynn is trying to figure out what happened she is discovering that like there's a consistent suspicion about the current mayor like everybody thinks the current mayor had something to do with their murder and like what does that mean for biloxi because if your mayor's that you know crooked and he arranged a hit out on his like competition yeah competition or whatever and that was something that a lot of people like assumed for a while and then um even lynn their daughter was like consistently suspicious of the mayor and his office until it was right in front of her that she couldn't deny that that wasn't the case but before we talk about that i wanted to back up and talk about vince and margaret's marriage because i found it to be one of the most compelling parts of this and that doesn't even have anything to do with like (laughs) really their murder um but it's just it highlights the kind of people they were and who miss like who biloxi lost in the process of this and so for example um margaret and vince were very much opposites they butted heads a lot but they worked well together so it was like this weird like spicy tension or something (laughs) and this one paragraph I just want to read it because I was like okay Margaret (laughs) Uh, because it says during one visit to Biloxi by Margaret's mother when Lynn was very young Vince asked his wife what was for dinner whatever you make she replied lightly he snapped out an open fist and struck her lightning quick right in front of Margaret's mother he instantly regretted it but said nothing Margaret paled, but she too remained silent. When Vince left the room to take a nap, his bouts of anger always left him exhausted, Margaret followed a few minutes later. Once they were alone, she pulled out the pistol she had just retrieved from the closet and pointed it at Vince. (laughs) You apologize in front of my mother, she said, or I pull the trigger. He apologized, and he meant it. I bet! (laughs) Uh, So, like, Vince, another thing that was with him is, like, he... So, Lynn was talking about, like... (laughs) her relationship with him and she he never said I love you but she knew it based on his actions Mm -hmm. but he could never say it and like he grew up with a tumultuous childhood so it was kind of like he had some stuff going on and he was characterized by like these bouts of violent temper that would happen and he never really abusive behavior um was more directed towards Margaret than it was anybody else and um it was because he was abused by his father and he just kind of like that was kind of how he that was the example he was given on how to process his emotions essentially and so he like got high blood pressure he was getting migraines and stuff so he had a lot of issues like in the head literally um but he was very sharp and um the only person who is really like really remembered him as just a doting father was the youngest because you know she's the baby (laughs) and usually by that time they didn't figure things out yeah so when he'd get mad he'd get like real mad real fast real quick and it'd be big and loud but then it'd be done you know Mm -hmm. and so um that was kind of like a look at their marriage but so what happens when they're murdered is lynn starts looking around And she's like, there's something weird with Pete. Like, what is Pete doing calling this guy named Kirksey Nix? And Kirksey Nix is very, very well connected with the Dixie Mafia. And so she's like, why is Pete having his, like, paralegal in the same law office that my father worked in calling Kirksey Nix regularly from his jail? And so what was going on was Pete was, like, essentially footing the bill for Kirksey Nix's life outside of prison. And he, like, 
get him money and stuff and it was I can't remember all the details because it's been so long and I'm sorry guys <laughs> but essentially Lynn starts looking at it and she doesn't want to believe like so Pete has been exhibiting some weird behavior like he wasn't very distraught that his business partner had been deceased um and it was kind of like well they had it coming type of attitude and it's not that Pete was very close to any of the kids, but Lynn's daughter, so Margaret's granddaughter, was helping her with her campaign organization um, for a really long time. And they were very close. Like, Margaret and her granddaughter were very, very close. And um, when her granddaughter met Pete for the first time, her granddaughter was like, uh-huh. no, I don't like that. <laughs> And nobody knew, nobody was like, why? It's just Pete. You know, like, it was kind of, the way they talked about him was like, he was just his business partner. It was somebody they knew. They didn't get really close with him, but uh-huh. like, this was a person in their father's life. And, and when stuff starts happening, Lynn doesn't want to believe it. So, like, Mississippi Mud is really written in Lynn's perspective, like, how she went through and discovered all this information about her parents and. Um, the thing you got to remember is Margaret is very by the book. Margaret is very like, you will do what's right. And Vince is kind of loosey goosey. Like he's smart, but he's like, if it benefits me, I'll do it. If I, if it doesn't, it doesn't. And so at one point there was a ruling on a case that Vince was debating when he was a judge, like he not a judge anymore. Um, but he was like, debating on what he needed to do and I think he like I can't remember the full story but he was going to rule on the case in a certain way that Margaret didn't agree with and she made him go back and do the right thing like he was going to give somebody however many years or something like that and she was like no you need to do the right thing and like she would influence his rulings on cases she just like his moral compass yeah because he, he was just like, nah. Not that, <laughs> I don't know. I'm saying this. And I'm like, dang, this guy wasn't that great of a guy. But he was. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm saying this stuff out loud. Well, sometimes you do need somebody to, to ring your coattail in. Yeah. Like, you need another person, a sounding board. And that's usually what husband and wife are. So, that's, we'll, we'll say that. Yeah. So, um, eventually this all gets tied up in the fact that Pete Hallett and Kirksey Nix have a very interesting relationship. And Kirksey Nix is scamming people from his jail cell. Like, and Kirksey Nix is also a judge's son. So he's very used <laughs> to getting whatever he wants when he wants it and having the law look the other way. Yeah. And um, there's a handful of people indicted for their murder at the end of the case. And they're never fully able to prove or link anyone directly um they had i a lot of circumstantial evidence eyewitness statements stuff like that but it wasn't anything that could definitively make the prosecutor's office be like hey yes. we're going after them and so Ooh, yeah I like that yeah it's not a clean tied <laughs> up case another figure that plays into this was i can't remember his name but he was a dude high up in the Dixie Mafia. And he was. He owned one of the last. Unofficial gambling. Uh, unofficial casinos. And like he. When everything got shut down. His places stayed open. Because he had his money. And he everybody owed him something. Right? Yeah. Um, and he was one of the people. Who got. Indicted. I believe. And arrested for the murder. Because he helped set it up. Because they all just wanted to get rid of her because she was gone. Yes. Yes, <laughs> very much. She was going to end their money and they yeah. didn't want that. And so okay. one of the motives was for Margaret to be taken care of. Another motive was that Vince had just figured out Pete Hallett's connection to Kirksey Nix before he died. So Vince was getting a little too close to things. Margaret was being real loud with her mouth <laughs> and about so stuff that needed to change. And they knew that if she got elected they were going to have to pay for it. And so it was kind of like, 
it's better to just take them both out. Whereas the like the main motive was to kill Margaret. Yeah. But Vince was there. Two birds, one stone. And um, early on in the case, um, one of the neighbors was like, you know how in the movies you see that 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 witness hanging around the corner and they're like looking and then they run away when somebody tries to pursue them uh-huh. or like they're looking in the curtain or in the <laughs> blinds and they're like mm. and then you look over and the blinds snap shut <laughs> this person was their neighbor and he said that one of the people at the crime scene had been in the neighborhood before and was asking questions and he was like somebody's been around here before and he identified one of the cops as somebody who was driving Pete Hallett around so like there was another connection and it was like <laughs> okay yeah and so it was basically the mafia, like the <laughs> the police yeah everybody connected okay yeah and so meanwhile Kirksey Nix is in prison like pretending to be a woman and scamming men out of their money <laughs> it is messy like what (laughs) yeah what um and he's like his 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 wife or his girlfriend at the time pick your flavor he had both um would help him scam people and pete hallett's assistant was one of his girlfriends and she was helping him get money because his idea was like i'm gonna build up all this money so when i get out of prison i'll be set i'm gonna be set and right. so Pete Hallett was helping in too. And Kirksey Nix gave Pete Hallett this fancy car. And Pete's like rolling around in Biloxi looking high on the hog. And it's just sketchy all the way around. But so essentially Mike Gillich is the guy who was like the big dude in Biloxi at the time. And he he had never gotten caught for anything. Um, And he had, like, friends, family, civic leaders stood by him through the first trial when he defied logic and fact to insist that he was an honest and God-fearing man. Um, And then the problem with their the case was that everybody who was serving as a witness or everybody who was indicted, everybody was lying on the stand. And it was, like, consistently messy. They were all con men trying to point the finger at each other over who conspired, who conspired to murder them, and then who actually pulled the trigger. And then, of course, you can't tell on the person who actually did it because you don't want to die. Yeah. So, <laughs> basically, the Sherry's murder is not clean cut. There are so many players in that. And it looks at, like, if you read Mississippi Mud, it looks at how the corruption of Biloxi is so complex and so intertwined and people use their connections and they use their connections for illegal purposes and it's like so there's a seedy underbelly that's not really an underbelly and it's this weird (laughs) like nobody's saying anything but it's all happening yeah we know it's going on but we also are not acknowledging that it's going on yeah and it's like I feel like that's the same thing that happened with the the Weeda case. Everybody was like, after it happened, is something everybody knew about, but nobody talked about. Mm-hmm. And this is like, it's happening all the time. It's something everybody knew about, but ain't nobody talked about it because we don't <laughs> want to get in trouble. And I don't know. It's just like so complex, and there's so many moving pieces to this. Um, we have the pa- the print copy. Again, it's checked out, but it's Mississippi Mud, and the subtitle was Southern Justice and the Dixie Mafia by Edward Humes, and I know that that's a very, very broad stroke on that case. Um, yeah, I mean, he talked about Southern Southern Justice. Was there really justice, or or that was Southern Justice? I, I would say, or yeah. Southern Justice? Yeah, like we took it into our own hands, Justice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because like they could never pin anyone specifically down so that's me rambling about that how about you all right well i'm gonna ramble as well so i can remember since this has got to be at least seven years ago maybe 
um, we got this big donation haul of books. Somebody just bought some books. Someone had passed away, and um, their children donated a plethora of books. So we were going through these books on the back table, and I came across The Heavy Hooker. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm so intrigued by just the title alone. I'm like, I... This is this just sounds like something I would want to read, but the book was in such a horrible condition that it wasn't anything that we could actually put in our collection. So I took it home to read, and I could not put it down. I, it was it was one of those reads, and it's it's rare that I pick up a read that I cannot put down and come back to. Yeah, and that was this one was one of them, and I. Talked it up so much that I requested that we get our own personal copy in the collection. And clearly, it is something that likes to be read because somebody took it home and didn't bring it back. So, um, we'll get it replaced. Yes, we will. Um, I decided to take a break from the normal true crime that we do where we're um, chronologizing chronologically talking about a murder or suicide or some type of crime, crime, um, mm-hmm. death crime, mm-hmm. and decided to talk about some prostitution crime. Okay. <laughs> so, um, The Happy Hooker um, gives you the story of either her name is Xaviera or Xavier um, Highlander. She is a um she is from the East Indies, now Indonesia. She was born to a French and German mother and a Dutch and Jewish father. So she's kinda of of a woman of all backgrounds. Um so we learn about her in this book, it tells how she um, eventually moves to New York from... Something went wrong. Please try again. I don't know what <coughs> what Siri's talking about because I wasn't talking to her at this time. She eventually she just went, went, what? <laughs> so, um, she was living in Holland. And at some point, she decided that she wanted to move from Holland, and she moved from from there to Africa, okay. and from Africa to New York City. And in between those times, she had a, quite a bit of stuff going on. Um, her dad, she actually was in an in-prison camp. She was in um, in prison in, Jap- in Japan. She was in a Japanese concentration camp. What? Yeah, because at the time of her... Uh, in her growing up, she they Indonesia was in a fight with Japan to become separate. So she's because she's she was in the uh, east in the in the East Indies, and they were trying to become an independent country. Mm-hmm. So that was a thing, and she actually ended up in a Japanese concentration camp. So at some point, she and her mom did um, escape, but her dad had to stay because he was a medical profession. He had to stay, and um, in fact, her dad, she ended up leaving the camp, but happened to come back, and he actually treated her. She didn't know, he didn't know that she was his daughter. That's how long they had been separated from each other. But um, in the 70s... I feel like that lady in that math meme. (laughs) Putting all the calculations together. (laughs) (laughs) They eventually um, reunite with with each other. But her dad, this is a... Let's say he's promiscuous. So we'll, we'll use that term. He's promiscuous. And so, Xavier later shows those same tendencies. And her mom is all like, you know, hey, I don't want you to do that. I want you to stay a virgin until you get married. But 
she's like, no. <laughs> no, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to I'm going to do some experimentation. Yeah. So she does ultimately she does lose her virginity to a uh 17-year-old um young man and she decides that oh, oh this is it right here and I'm just going to go out here and this is what my life is going to consist of. Oh, like <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this to the best of my ability. So, um she does graduate high school and in fact she's very smart. She um decides that she's going to be a secretary and she started working for an advertising agency, but all in the meanwhile, she's out here experimenting, and she's like, I'm going to sleep with this person, that person, and I'm just going to just have the time of my life. Yes. Now, she does not connect sex with love. So I mean, some people can compartmentalize yeah, that. Yeah, she definitely does. So she's like, I'm just, this is, I'm doing something because I have this desire I have no. I wonder. It would. It would be interesting. Like now we can't. But well, is she still alive? She's still alive. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'd be cool to see like what um, chemicals are released in her brain when she does that because you know women have oxytocin and dopamine, whereas men only have dopamine. Huh. And that's what makes women connected with love. So I wonder if she has that release, like. I wonder if that's a thought. So, um, eventually, she uh, falls in love with this um, man who kind of lures her to uh, South Africa. Okay. What but time is he? What time is this? <laughs> this is um, in the early 60s. Oof. Like, well, I'm sorry, early 70s. Oof. So, um, that ain't a good place to be. No, she, she goes over to South Africa and she falls in love with this guy. But um, it didn't work out, of course. So she eventually moves in. She also she had a sister named Mona and a brother-in-law named Dan. And she moved in with them. But <laughs> over in South Africa, you just can't be promiscuous like she was in Holland because Holland was a little bit more liberal. They were free. free. South Africa is definitely not liberal at this time. N- no, <laughs> at all. So she's like over the board. She got all these insatiable the desires. In the house board. Mm-hmm. She got all these desires that she really can't do anything about. So she experiments with her sister and brother-in-law. Yeah, it gets kind of like what? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. So after we realized we judge. don't really like we don't really want to do this, but at the same time, I just got these desires and I just need this need I need met. Mm. Yeah, it was it was weird for a little bit. So we gonna jump on past that. So uh, she moves. She later meets another guy named Carl, and Carl lures her to New York. And he was like, I'm going to marry you. But he doesn't because she gets arrested and inserts crime. Oh, no. <laughs> she gets arrested for um, indecent exposure. So she's a secretary at this um, law firm now. And she is having sex in an area where she can be seen. <laughs> well, when the mood hits her, she just has to do it and no matter where the location may be. So she could be clinically diagnosed as an nymphomaniac. Definitely. Okay. Definitely diagnosis that. Oh, Lord. So, okay. Carl, like, no. Milani, I don't think I was ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I was. Okay, keep going. So, Carl, like, no, I can't marry you because you got issues (laughs) you got issues so she decides that so she really did love Carl but also she had those desires so she decides okay I'm not gonna deal with love anymore for now I'm just gonna go out here and I'm just gonna do my thing so she goes out and she just has 
sex all the time with anybody who is willing to do so. So one day this epiphany comes across her and she's like, you know what? I'm going to make this my life. I'm going to become the best madam in the city of New York and I'm going to own the top brothel. Which for her makes sense because (laughs) she wants to do this. Like this is her life. This This is something that she enjoys doing. And so she's like, I'm going to do this. But she ends up getting blackmailed when she first started start out because somebody got in got a hold of her and Carl's sex video and photos and they're like we're gonna expose you and so so she the money that she was making at her brothel at the time were in her own personal life as a prostitute she um ultimately ends up having to give to the person that was blackmailing her so um each chapter of this book is like it describes her growing up from her childhood when you know she happened to be at the um concentration camp because her mother her mother and father both were of some type of uh her sorry her father was of a Jewish background and her mother was German, and they procreated her, so there was all kind of issues in Japan. So they were not, um, they were transients. And mm-hmm. so, you know, of course, you know, you can't do that in the middle of a war as well. Yeah. So uh, at some point, they do meet back up in Amsterdam where they um, rebuild their life. So she leaves there. And she moves to South Africa with her uh, sister, but it's her half sister. It's her dad's first uh, dad's daughter from her first marriage. And then she moves uh, to New York with Carl. And Carl, the voice, uh, decides that he doesn't want to marry her, but he does. He tells her he doesn't want to marry her, but he also doesn't tell her that he's decided that he's moving along with another woman named Rona. And he and Rona go away to Jamaica, and they actually get married because he he was engaged to Xavier, but he was also engaged to Rona, and the two of them was kind of like biding for his love per se. And 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 I guess in a way you could just be like he was thinking made a best woman win. Ew. And then when Xavier got arrested, he was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go with Rona then. So he does marry Rona, but he still periodically meets back up with Xavier because Xavier has all these tricks of the trade because, you know, this is her life. Like, she really wants to be out here mm-hmm. doing stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she... In in the meantime, Xavier, Xavier meets this another man, an Englishman named Evelyn St. John, and he spends the week with her. And he, how she realizes that she wants to make this profession is that he gives her $100 at the end of the week. And she's like, what is this for? And he's like, you give, it to your, give this to your parents because he's thinking that she's a lot younger than what she is because she looks young. So I give it to your parents. And let them put you in this type of some type of boarding school where you can learn to find self love for yourself because you deserve the type of man that would take care of you. Well, instead of Xavier thinking of it on the lines of I deserve better than this, it was like, oh, I can use my body and do what I want to do and get paid oh. to do it. <laughs> That's not the li- <laughs> so. Meantime, all this is going on. She's still working as a secretary at the United Nations when she starts getting, yes, the United Nations. Because because she is of all the United Nations, because she's all these different things, she is working in New York at the United Nations. And that's when inserts the blackmailer who is trying to 
blackmail her with the pictures of her and Carl, and they're going to put them out to her bosses. And she was like, you know what? I'm not going to try to figure out how I'm going to raise this money. So I'm just going to quit and then go ahead and do what you got to do because I've decided that I'm going to go and I'm going to be a, a madam. Well, I'm going to first be a prostitute. So she starts prostituting herself, making all this money, and she gets arrested for the uh the second time. She already got arrested for indecent exposure. She gets arrested the second time for just regular prostitution. And <laughs> by this time, she meets another man named Paul. And Paul really does like her, but she keeps getting arrested for prostitution. And he's like, I, I like you a lot. But I can't get with this lifestyle that you're doing. It's like, I can be all the things, or he thinks that he can be all the things that she needs. But he can't be that because he cannot satisfy her sexually. Mm-hmm. Mentally, she's great with him. Life is great. But sexually, he doesn't do what she needs him to do. So he, she continues to do her own thing. So she goes away. Uh, they break up. Feelings are kind of hurt. And I don't think her feelings are hurt because they broke up. I think her feelings are hurt because he broke up with her. It was like, you know, how dare you break up with me? Um, not you shouldn't break up with me. And yeah. so she goes, decides she's going to move to Puerto Rico. <laughs> she's going to move to Puerto Rico. <laughs> she goes to Puerto Rico for two months, and she hooks up with people over there, and, and she prostitutes over there, too. But she's making bank over in Puerto Rico. She's like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a doggone thing. But she hooks up with another set of people who were ultimately using her. They get her high and drunk one night, and they steal her life savings. So now she got to come back to New York. And when she came back to New York, she was like, you know what? There are perfectly good people who are prostitutes, and they do this for a living. And I'm going to do the same thing. In fact, I'm going to become the biggest madam in New York City. And she does. She prostitutes herself until she gets enough money to, to rent a one-bedroom apartment. She finds other prostitutes who were with uh, pimps who were abusing them, invite them to come stay with her. They come and move in with her, and she starts a brothel. And she's bringing in bank. like She's, she's uh, bringing in lawyers and doctors, um, high-class um uh, bank, uh, what's the, what they call uh, stockbrokers, mm-hmm. bankers, like she's bringing in them all. And then she gets connected with the police and they started taxing her. And that's the best way to put it. Yeah, like you you pay us and mm-hmm. we'll keep quiet. And we'll keep quiet. Yeah. So as long as she was paying them, they was keeping quiet until she made a customer mad. She made this customer mad, and he decided that he went to go to the police, and the police arrested her for, like, 24 hours. And they let her go because, you know, he he reported it, and they had to pretend like they were going to do something. Mm-hmm. And she, had, she paid, like, this small, mediocre fine. Well, when the guy realized that the police was kind of in on it, and he couldn't get her banned, he went to the FBI. Okay. <laughs> so he goes to the FBI and they start watching her. So she she gets arrested again for trafficking. She tra she went and got somebody that was prostituting in another area mm-hmm. and they called her to come and save them. And she brought them back to her place and they got her for trafficking. So when they got her for trafficking, they uh, went through her books and saw that she had been documenting all the different um, prominent people in New York City that she had been working with, including the New York police. Um, There is another guy. I don't see his name in my notes, but he... lies to her. He was like, you know, I'm going to... Record what's going on at your house to keep help you keep track of what's going on. So 
he plants bugs throughout the house, but he was only be able like to record like certain times a day or certain parts a day. But he planted other bugs that never cut off. And he would take the information that he was learning from them from what was going on in the house and he was actually selling it to the FBI. So she ends up getting like some major time because she was actually um, dealing with people like famous actors and stars, and they were all entangled in this big web of prostitution. So they couldn't. I'm tired. They couldn't. I'm <laughs> telling you, they couldn't. The book was so good. Like, they couldn't, like, put her away because she was connected to, like, district attorneys and vice presidents yeah. like she was connected to so many people that ultimately every time they arrested her they had to let her go mm. so by the end of the book she um introduced his name was abe abe the book and <laughs> she called him abe the bugger his name was abraham um that was the guy who was uh bugging the house and selling all the stuff by, 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 by the time you get to the end of the book, it does end on a remotely happier note mm-hmm. that she had been prostituting for 20, 30 years now. And with this brothel, um, she decided to get out of the business because they were threatening her with like some major jail time, prison time, federal prison time, although, but prison time. But... Even with that, Xaviera has been married twice, divorced once. She has children. She has written. <laughs> she has written nine novels. She's been in Penthouse. She had. There are movies about her life. I've actually seen one of them. Um, it's called The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood. Hmm. Um, there's The Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. She has written um, 69 Ways to Please Your Woman, 69 Ways for the Woman to Please Her Man. Hmm. Like, she has. A, I, this, her life didn't just end with prostitution. She She's written all these books. She has a... Those are all her works. Whoa. All of these were written by her. Yeah. And that's just nonfiction. She's also has fiction books as well. Hmm. Like she's she she did not let the grass grow under her feet. Well, just like I googled some images of her to get a better idea and seeing the quotes that are attributed to her i can see how it would be a very very good quick read because yeah. like just these quotes are very quick-witted like you can call me mercenary or call me madam as always i tell my customers just call me anytime anytime <laughs> and then she says you can't be good in bed anymore you have to be good at the keyboard too yep because at some point and i don't know if it's in if it was in this book or the second one because i did read the second one as well um she started a phone sex business and then from a phone sex business to a chat room. So, like, her money is coming in. Yeah. <laughs> she has her own website right now. You can look her up. It's uh, Xavier Hollander something at dot, uh, dot com. Mm-hmm. It's all one word, I think. But, like, she, I, I am very impressed with her. <laughs> very impressed and then you can email her so like if you wanted to talk to her and, and want to catch up you can email her <laughs> yeah i was seeing on um the goodreads review of the book that somebody who reviewed it was like we met her and she like consistently still emails us about her life yeah like, she even has a bed and breakfast so if you want to go visit her she has a, you can stay at her house at her it's bed called and breakfast happy house b and d yep <laughs> well, she's an entrepreneur. That's for sure. She definitely that. All right. So definitely that. Do you have anything else you want to share? 
No, I don't think so. Well, I want to update you. I know I talked about this case before when we were talking about you had brought the um, fictionalized true crime case about that girl who was found in the car. Mm-hmm. What was the name? Fictionalized. It was like a fiction book about a true crime case. Oh, uh, in a in a car? Or is it a... Uh... Well, I thought it was a car. I could be wrong. Let me see. Let me go to loungelibrary.com forward slash listen <laughs> and uh, see what we got here. Um, oh. The Innocence by Ace Atkins. Yeah. That's, you were talking about Jessica Chambers. Yeah. Anyways. I said in that episode that I was watching the Tara Grinstead case because they're about to be called to court, and it was Ryan Dukes who was indicted on the murder mm-hmm. and, like, everything. And I watched the live court case. Like, I had it on my phone watching him testify in court about what happened. And his story changed a little bit. Like, so he had, in, he had admitted that he killed her. Um, but it was under duress, and so it was like a false confession. And so in the courtroom, he was like, I didn't kill her. It was Bo Dukes who did it, and he called me to help him dispose of the body. And um, event, so the ruling, like I watched, it was wild. I watched <laughs> it as the ruling came out. I watched his reaction. They... So he was found not guilty of her murder. But he was found guilty of disposing of her body because there's no direct evidence. And mm. so they are going on trial for um, another indictment in the next county over where they actually disposed of her body. But I just thought that was so wild that he didn't get. Um, he actually didn't charge him with her murder. Yeah. But I also don't think the prosecutor helped the case at all. Like, I think the defense looked very like, we understand that this is a terrible thing that happened. And we're not making light of this. Like, that was the defense's take. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor was, like, very aggressive towards him on the stand. And it came across like she was admonishing him like a grade school teacher. And it was just like... Mm. if I was on the jury I'd be like you're not I mean honestly I'm not here for entertainment but also you're making him look even more innocent yeah, by the way that why you talking to him de- like she was like demonizing him and it's like somebody's life was lost in this I almost felt like in the courtroom when you're trying to get somebody sentenced for murder, the time to moralize is past. Mm -hmm. The time to, you know, like, that can be done by the judge at sentencing, right? That's normally when we're like, you're a terrible person, blah, blah, blah. But, like, when it was on the stand, it was like it almost helped him not, in my view, it almost helped him not be charged because he was very much like, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, I did not do that. No, ma'am. Well, she played into that. She did that, though. Because, I mean, at this point, you're trying to prove that he did do. Like, you you should, your evidence, you should be bringing forth the evidence to show that this person did what they did. Not just saying, I know you did it. You did it because you're such a bad person. Like, that's, I need to see some evidence. I don't care how you feel about it. I need to be able to see it on paper. Well, it was like, it was very much in the same vein of, like, catching a kid do something and they're lying at, mm-hmm. in, like about it right to your face but like I just saw you do that didn't I and you did it and you helped her do this didn't you and he's like no, no. ma'am like that was the <laughs> that was the cadence was like Unless you she- did that too didn't you no ma'am and then that too didn't you no ma'am like it was like okay <laughs> okay okay so um he will. He got indicted on charges for helping dispose of the body in Ben Hill County, and that's the next county over where they disposed of her and stuff. And he he broke down on the stand talking about when he saw her 
and and I was just like, Aww. it was, I'm not saying the guy deserves sympathy because he doesn't, but it was very, it was harrowing to hear about. And it was like, I think the thing with that case specifically is with the up and vanished podcast and everything coming out about it, the victim's been lost because it's like, who did it? Who did it? Who did it? We don't care about anything else but who did it and how are they going to get it, you know? And it's like, his testimony was like, yeah, that was a person. It's not just a pop culture thing. It's not just a true crime case for your entertainment. That was a person. And so watching that play out in real time, it was wild. And I was just like, jaw on the floor of why so I mean I expected him not to be because there's no direct it was all circumstantial evidence and it was a lot based on his false confession there was no way that they were going to be able to prove with on beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it like no no possible way I'm always leery like you know I love to listen to true crime podcasts and stuff like that I'm always leery of two things I'm leery when you get a confession, but you've been interviewing a person for 13 hours. Yeah. Like, I'm always leery of those confessions because it's like, at this point, anywhere between 10 to 20 hours that you're talking to somebody, they're going to say what you want them to say because they're tired, they're delirious, you've deprived them of food and water. And like at this point, they're tired. And they're just like, okay, I did it. So you can leave me alone. Right. So I'm always weary of those. And I'm always, I'm always, always, always leery of those confession those uh witness statements that come like after somebody's been arrested mm-hmm. it's like oh i'm in jail now i want to tell you what so-and-so so-and-so did and like this is beneficial to them because now they've become a witness for the prosecution and they get some type of deal so they don't go to prison forever in a day mm-hmm. and they're going to tell you what you want to hear so they can convict the person they're trying to convict. So those are two things that, and I've noticed that a lot of times the prosecution hangs their entire case on a confession that has been given 13 hours after the fact or um, a witness who was given a plea deal mm-hmm. so they can get out of prison. Those two things, and they they will, and a lot of times they win their cases based on it. But if I was a juror on, on there and this, and you would tell me that the confession came much later in, in the interrogation as well as a person that decided they was getting a plea deal and they wanted to tell you what happened, yeah. I wouldn't believe neither one of those stories. I just wouldn't. Yeah. What I'm leery of is, like, so there were some witnesses in the, who testified, and they were like, I saw him on this day. And I'm like, y'all, this was 13 years ago. You can't. I barely remember who I saw yesterday. Amen. Like, <laughs> that's what gets me is I, as much as it sucks, like, I'm torn on how long something can, like, murder, no doubt, like, that needs to be. Like, there needs to be justice for that. But also, how, what credence do you give somebody who's like, I saw them in their truck at 12.01 p.m. on Thursday, uh, March the 3rd in 2003 and i remember because i was holding this coffee in my hand like you don't you don't you don't remember that and i can tell you that for a fact i um in my apartment complex that i live in now i was in a one-bedroom apartment and this guy got killed um the story was that he jumped out a window of my apartment complex and he was having an affair with somebody else's girlfriend and the person saw him jump out the window and they shot him, and he fell over the ledge that the apartment complex sits on. I don't know all the details of that because I was in my own apartment. But what I do remember is seeing his body in the back street laid. I do remember that. Jeez. I remember that it took multiple hours for them to cover him up because they were doing an investigation. I remember that. But what I don't remember, what time it was. I yeah. don't remember that. Yeah. I don't remember what he was wearing. I just remember seeing him there in the street. So, like, you remember certain things about a murder, but you will never remember 
like, oh, it was exactly 8.05 p.m. Like, you don't. You don't. Because it's, it's the heat of the moment. Like, you, those things, you're not looking at your clock trying to remember what time it is. Now that I've been <laughs> listening to true crime stuff, I do look at my clock when I notice something <laughs> weird. Like, uh, the, the neighbors that I'm talking about now have moved out and moved on. But a couple neighbors down from me, in the middle of the day, my neighbor had a fire going in their grill. Like, a huge, like past the eyebrows <laughs> it was like a little bump and i'm like what? <laughs> like what is going on and he's like throwing stuff into it and it was not meat and i was like that's okay that's and i go back it. inside and it's like 4 15 and i was like <laughs> and i said remember the guy i looked at my husband i was like look <laughs> You, you got to remember that this <coughs> happened at this time in case somebody comes back at us. <laughs> it's like, did you see anything? Because I just saw something real weird, and it's this time of day, and I need you. Because it was like a Sunday. I can't remember what day. Uh-huh, yeah. But it was a weekend because I was home in the middle of the day, <laughs> and my husband was home too, so it had to be a Sunday. Sunday. Because he, he works on Saturdays. And so I came back in, and I was like, that was just weird. Sus. <laughs> and what time is it? And we need to note this. And he just rolled his eyes at me. He was like, oh, my God, whatever. But I'm like, no, see? But t- 20 years from now, somebody could come at us. <laughs> and be like, hey, you live on this road at this time of this year range. And do you yeah. ever remember? And yeah, I like, remember. And I know it was a Sunday, but I can't tell you what day. Yeah. But I tell you, 4.15 p.m. on Sunday, he was blasting some heat. <laughs> and burning some maybe it was like a cathartic she broke up with me i'm gonna burn her letters type situation it could have been could have been but i'm gonna forever remember because <laughs> four fifteen. so yeah <laughs> look at your watches people <laughs> that's our advice for today at least know what time it is i could i can't tell you what time it was yeah. but i saw that i know it was it, it was in the morning four day in the morning but i don't know when if you made it this far we thank you so much for listening with us and you know, not judging us for our struggles. (laughs) And if you could like, share, subscribe to the podcast, tell somebody you know about us, we're back. Yeah. And we'd love to have your support again. Um, And we appreciate you guys so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.